This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me today on the Becoming Educated podcast is Stuart Farmer. Stuart is a teacher and teacher educator. He worked as a physics teacher and a principal teacher of physics for 35 years. During this time, he has been very active in supporting teachers' professional learning. Stuart has an MBA in educational management and an MSc in teacher education and is currently studying for a PhD in teacher education with a focus on career-long professional learning. Stuart now works as the education manager for the Institute of Physics in Scotland. Stuart, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, thanks very much, Dan. It's good to be here. Are you? So just to, just to ease us off gently, could you give us a, a whistle-stop tour of your career? Today? I know that I covered it a little bit in the introduction, but could you go a little bit deeper for us? Uh, th- thanks very much. Um, and it might take a wee bit longer than expected because essentially I see my career as being running in two parallel parts. Uh, there's the sort of teaching and then there's all the other stuff that I've been involved with. Um, you know, my first three years of teaching was at Kinross High School. Uh, and then I moved up to the northeast, where I've been ever since. Uh, first to Peterhead Academy as the APT when APT posts existed, uh, and then I moved after a couple of years to Afford Academy, and I was PT Physics there uh, for seven years before I made a sort of sideways move to being head of physics at Robert Gordon's College in Aberdeen. Uh, and I, I suppose I, I got stuck there a little bit. Um, spent uh, twenty odd years there. Um, it was a nice place to work. Um, uh, you know, I did look at other things and other opportunities, but uh, my daughters were at school and I didn't want to disrupt them. And um, I suppose I was also a bit picky about what I was prepared to move to. So um, basically one of the, the reasons that um, I stuck uh, at Robert Gordon's College was that it allowed me to do uh, some of the other things that I'm about to go on and uh, describe, um, which I've basically been involved with right from the, the start when I was a teacher at Kinross High School. Um, so the, the sort of second sort of parallel part of my career um, started with me joining the Association for Science Education uh, right at the beginning of my, my teaching career. And, and, and initially that was really for quite a mundane reason and that it was the cheapest way to, to get indemnity insurance, which, you know, as a, a science teacher was something that I was a wee bit concerned about. Not that um, there's ever really been any problems in that regard. Um, um, but I might add that just after that, I did actually join the SSTA as well uh, and ended up being the, the RGC uh, SSTA rep for a, a number of years as well. But uh, initially, um, you know, I got into ASE for the insurance part of it. But what I actually found was um, a sort of wider community. And I initially joined the, the local Tayside committee in 1986. Um, and... I've actually held a, an ASE committee post of some form or another continually ever since. Um, you know, I've been chair of ASE Scotland three times and I was uh, spent a term as the chair of the ASE trustees um, as well uh, about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and I'm currently a member of the registration board uh, and that's responsible for awarding CSI Teach, um, registered scientist, registered science technician, uh, professional registrations. Um, so, so initially, you know, I got involved with ASE, but things s- snowballed from there. Um, I was invited to go on to the then 
SEB, the, the Scottish Examination Board Physics Panel, and I actually chaired that um, for seven years as it transitioned into the SQA Physics Panel. Um, I was a member of the higher still reference group. I was invited on to the SEB, that's the, the Scottish Examination Board uh, Physics Panel, um, and I ended up uh, chairing that for, for seven years in, in the end as it transitioned into the SQA uh, physics panel. Um, and at the same time, I was also a member of the, the higher still reference groups and specialist groups for physics. Um, I've also been a member of other national advisory committees, SEAG, uh, that's the uh, Science and Engineering Education Advisory Group and STEMEC, uh, Science, Technology, Engineering and Maths Education Committee. Um, and I was a very rare education voice on the Scottish Science Advisory Council, uh, which works with the Chief Scientific Advisor to, to give advice to, to government. Um, for the last 20 years, um, I've also been very active in the Institute of Physics uh, that I now sort of work for full time. But b before that, um, I was uh, a committee member and from 2003 up to 2019, I was a physics teacher network coordinator uh, and I was employed on a consultancy basis alongside my teaching job to organise and provide professional learning support to teachers. So um, it was really just a transition from that sort of part-time role to full-time role uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and I'm now responsible for the sort of oversight of all the educational activities, both the sort of teacher support and the educational policy work in Scotland. Um, my work for IOP meant that I gradually became more involved with teacher education, uh, mainly you know career-long professional learning. Um, but I also produced and tutored the University of Aberdeen's um, distance learning course for physics teachers. And uh, in my roles as head of department, I had over 60 student teachers. I, I sort of lost count of how many student teachers I've had in placement in my department. Um, so I'm interested in the sort of practice and the policy of teacher education. Um, led me to do the, the MSc in teacher education at the University of Oxford and, and now my PhD. Um, so, you know, I hope that just gives a flavour of the fact that I, I see my sort of career as having two parallel parts, you know, the, the teaching in the classroom, which, you know, I enjoyed and um, was you know, a really important part, but all the, the other, you know, mostly unpaid uh, professional roles um, and, and ones where the teacher voice is not often uh, loudly heard. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the teacher voice is not often, you know, heard loudly enough. Um, I, I must admit, I've sat around tables where various people were voicing their opinions on teaching and education, but I was the only person there that had direct experience in the classroom. Um, and there were times it could get quite frustrating, to be honest. And I, I often only thought of this sort of perfect reply or the perfect boot put down once I was on the train, you know, sitting on the train home after the meetings. Um, so I, I know it's difficult for teachers to get out of the classroom, uh, but there needs to be ways of making sure that the voice of practising teachers are heard in policy making. Um, the other thing in my you know, sort of parallel career is I've been fortunate enough to uh, have lots of opportunities to travel to conferences and educational events around the world. Um, and that's really been interesting and you know part of this wider education. Um, I've been to 
both England and Ireland lots of times, um, you know, well into double figures, uh, but also to the USA and Canada several times, to Australia and, you know, lots of European countries, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Hungary, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, Portugal, you know, might have missed one or two. Um, and, and what I've observed from all of this is that, you know, Scottish education can be quite parochial at times. Um, you know, too much, you know, wise like us, and damn few, and there are deed, you know, so I'll <laughs> let you translate the, the direct down. I, I know that you can cope with that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, when you travel and speak to teachers from other systems, it's really easy to see that there's lots of different ways of doing things. And we don't always, I think, recognise that in Scotland. I think that's some important points you made there. It was interesting you, you mentioned the, the Doric and you mentioned that you worked in Aberdeen and joined the Tayside Committee of of the Science Teachers in 1986. I was born in Aberdeen in 1987, so it's, it's, a, it's a, great, a great parallel being from that part of the world and I fully understand what you're saying. So we're going to spend the rest of the, the interview unpicking a lot of the things that you've learned in that in, in your kind of, kind of side career, a lot of the unpaid work you did and a lot of your research into teacher ed, teacher education, and we're going to we're going to focus in on on career long professional learning as well. Okay, sure. Just to move on from that intro, introduction, um, what do you consider to be effective CLPL? Well, I'm pretty sure that lots of your listeners will probably be able to identify examples of CLP CLPL which have not been effective. Um, you know, 200 people in an assembly hall listening to an inspirational speaker about something. That's probably only very relevant to half a dozen of people in the room um, and that's never followed up. Um, you know, that's the sort of box ticking approach to CLPL or the, the, the good God, what am I going to get them to do for a day approach to CLPL leadership? Um, you know, or the result of a, a head teacher, you know, going and hearing somebody speak at a conference and coming back, you know, thinking that, you know, my school staff's got to hear about this person without actually thinking about how it fits into things more strategically. Um, in many ways, I actually prefer the term fit for purpose CLPL um, rather than effective CLPL, um, as it emphasises that there are actually different purposes for for professional learning um you know some professional learning is just a legal requirement you know such as child protection or, or basic training like learning to use a new it system um you know they're all necessary uh, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily lead to the professional growth of teachers or the improved learning of pupils um you know one could argue that pupils don't if pupils don't feel safe they won't learn very well and generally speaking you know, teachers spending time and basic training doesn't have very much impact on pupil learning. Um, so I think that that needs to be sort of recognised mm -hmm. um, that there are different purposes. Um, what we really need is CLPL where teachers grow um, and they improve and transform their practice, uh, which leads to improved learning of pupils, you know, improved outcomes for their pupils. And of course, that means and improve performance for the education system as a whole. Um, there have been various studies and meta-studies into the characteristics of CLPL, um, you know, that work by people like Helen Timperley, Philip Accordingly, Linda Darling Hammond, Hamilton, um, you know, Linda Darling Hammond, um, for example. Um, there's a general consensus around some of the features of transformative 
CLPL. Um, although some people like Harry Fletcher Wood, for example, would disagree. But I think that's really just about cause and effect um, as much as anything else. Uh, obviously, that's, that's very important. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think there is a consensus about CLPL and that it should be, you know, focused on valued pupil outcomes, um, should integrate knowledge and skills, um, there should definitely be multiple opportunities to learn and apply the learning. It needs to be sustained over a period of time. Um, I think it also needs to be collaborative, like not all of it always, you know, working with others, but there needs to be a collaborative element um, so that there's opportunities to process new learning with others, bounce ideas off each other. Um, You know, it's always helpful to identify, you know, best ways forward, by bouncing ideas around um it also needs to draw on knowledgeable others um um you know th- there needs to be a way of challenging the status quo and I-, I like the term knowledgeable others because um you know some people would talk about external experts and you know knowledgeable others can be external experts but a knowledgeable other could just be the colleague in the room next door um it's you know somebody that's got additional expertise that can be brought to the table um and i think this a last point that i would like to emphasize is that it really does need to be supported by leadership i think there is a limit to what teachers can do on their own outside or despite the system um so there really needs to be you know some leadership support for for good professional learning now how all of that's done um can vary. I think that there's no single silver bullet. As Dylan Williams said, you know, everything works somewhere, but nothing works everywhere. Um, or you might want to take the, the slightly lower brow banana rama approach, you know, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Um, you know, so things that can work well, it's coaching, various different forms of coaching, practitioner inquiry, lesson study, professional learning communities, teaching uh, teacher learning communities, network learning communities. Um, but the main thing is that they're all focused on improving pupil learning. Uh, they bring the right people together. It um, gives teachers time to discuss teaching and learning with others, to experiment things out, you know, and try things out in their own classes. Um, and it needs to give in sort of resource and time and support from leadership um, so that there you know, can be a consistent high prioritization so it's not just seen as a bolt on on top of you know everything else that teachers do it's got to be you know part of what being a teacher is all about um and i think in scotland generally the culture around clpl you know hasn't always been been very good it's you know often been quite poor and i think the clpl experiences of many teachers have been poor and it's not really engendered you know, positive attitudes all the time. You know, for for too many, it's been a yufty um, that, you know, and that's basically because lots of people have been forced to do CLPL on the wrong things that, you know, they don't see relevant to what they're doing in their, their own teaching. It's something that just basically gets in the way of, of what they want to get onto, um, including, you know, doing their, their own uh, CLPL. Uh, and that, has resulted in, in frustration and um, you know also I think um, teachers often feel that they don't have a voice um, in naturally guiding and selecting their own professional learning um, and unfortunately I think that you know 
that's the experience of lots of teachers. And if they move into senior leadership positions and they've been through that sort of process, they are then not well served to know how to organise and support good quality professional learning in their, you know, for their staff in their schools. Um, I think there's also a, a bit of a history in Scotland of focusing on leadership training as the solution to all the problems in Scottish education, rather than actually focusing on teaching and learning in the classroom. Um, an example of that is, you know, back in the 1990s, I was trained up as part of the national programme to deliver appraisal training, um, you know, to staff. It's, you know, what, what was being introduced by the, the then SOEID. Uh, lots of money was spent, you know, on that, but it wasn't of directly of benefit to improving teaching and learning in the classroom. Um, and the appraisal, which now, you know, known as the, the PRD process, you know, the professional review and development process, um, it wasn't necessarily backed up with the capacity in the system to meet the needs of the teachers, you know, what the teachers were actually identifying as part of the process. Uh, there was also a tension between the professional learning needs of the individual teachers um, and the priorities of the school. Um, so I think in the end, lots of people did still basically pay lip service to PR&D as a result. Uh, you know, and it hasn't necessarily generated the right sort of culture around about it. Um, more recently, the work started by Scale um, you know, has also focused on leadership, although that includes teacher leadership. But I think even that term, you know, if teacher leadership gets in the way a little bit, then can be misinterpreted. Um, but I think progress has been made, um, and then, but there needs to be a focus on, on changing the culture of many in leadership positions and, you know, uh, teachers as well um, about, you know, what we can actually do through good professional learning. Um, support for leadership is clearly one of the key factors affecting the impact of professional learning, you know, and I wouldn't want to diminish leadership CLPL. Uh, but I think there needs to be a, a rebalancing with more CLPL focused on improving teaching in the classroom. You know, if we're going to improve educational outcomes, we need you know more and better quality CLPL, basically. Certainly, and and I I echo those that that, that follow my, myself and have followed other podcasts of mine. I talk a lot about how leadership is is a is a confusing narrative we have in Scotland, and you kind of alluded to it there that it's. It permeates a lot of the policy and a lot of the, the the CPD that we actually do in schools. Whereas, what you've mentioned there about focused on on value pupil outcomes and focusing on the teaching and learning in the classroom is perhaps where we need to get it. And it leads on to, to my next question to you, Stuart, and, and that is, what are we not getting right in terms of teacher CLPL? Well, I think a fairly simple answer, you know, following on from what I've just said, is there isn't enough focus on CLPL aimed at improving teaching and learning. Absolutely, I'd, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with that, and I think that was that that came through quite a lot in, in what you were saying. But we're now going to, to kind of kind of turn the tide a little bit, and I'm going to ask you about how we we turn the narrative so that we do get effective CLPL. Okay, well, as I've said, we need to focus more on improving teaching and learning. Um, you know, that's the core business of schools. Um, it's the quality of teaching, um, whether that's in the classroom or online. You know, as we've had it uh, just now that impacts pretty much on on every educational outcome you would care to to measure. Um, there's lots of rhetoric about this, you know, from John Swinney as the uh, 
Secretary, uh, State for Education, um, you know, write down, um, but it must be followed through. It's got to be more than rhetoric. Um, you know, despite the positive rhetoric, there's lots of pressures on the system acting in the opposite direction. Uh, performativity, accountability, rather than creating the, the teacher agency and the transformative professionalism that I think we all want to see. Um, teachers need to be supported to teach better. Um, you know, some would say that teachers just need to be left to get on and do their jobs. But I think, you know, that that's far too simplistic as well. Um, you know, just giving teachers autonomy to get on and do their own thing isn't the answer either. Uh, teachers need to be able to focus on teaching. You know, that's the core of their job. Uh, but they need to, it needs to be done in a supportive culture and an environment where they collaborate with colleagues, you know, have good access to good quality, relevant, you know, CLPL, um, and that that's seen to be part of the, the, the core, a core part of the job of being a teacher, you know, not just a, a nice bolt-on. Um, Andy Hargreaves uses the term collaborative professionalism. Uh, at the heart of that is more teacher autonomy in terms of top-down system accountability, uh, and the pressures, you know, from from the top, but actually less autonomy from your immediate colleagues and those working in similar contexts. Um, yeah, and that will bring a change of accountability too, more accountability from within and from your immediate community uh, rather than, you know, from on high, you know, whatever or whoever they might be. Um, You've recently had Bruce Robertson uh, on your podcast, and I think that was a really good example, which is showing how you know getting the the culture right in a school, with a firm focus on improving the the teaching and learning, you know, in a collaborative shared environment, can really make a difference. Um, but it's not happening in every school. Um, Another really good bit of evidence is the, the work that Kraft and Pappy have done on the professional environment of a teacher and how that can impact both on their own professional growth and the attainment of their pupils. Um, you know, the important part of Kraft and Pappy's work is that it does actually show that it makes a difference to the sort of pupil outcomes. Um, so, so teachers working in a good professional learning environment are more likely to develop you know, what Berliner calls adaptive expertise. And I think that that's really important if we're going to improve teaching and the system as a whole. Certainly. Do you think then, because a lot of what you mentioned there, you gave the example of, of Bruce, and, and Bruce was a, was a school leader during the time of, of that change at, at IMF High School. And you've mentioned it a couple of times about, the. you mentioned there about the professional environment and you mentioned the previous question about Kind of there is a space for leadership CPD, but how important are, are school leaders in, in helping change that narrative and building the professional environment that allows teachers to really focus on teaching and learning and, and ha, ha experience meaningful CLPL? Well, the, the, the leadership in, in any school, just I think as the leadership in any organisation, essentially is a, a large part in setting the tone. Um, so if, if the tone, the ethos of the organisation's not right, um, then it's going to be very difficult to do very much else. So, so leadership is an important part of it, and um, I think it's an important part on uh, those in leadership positions. Um, you know, and part of their responsibility is to try and make sure that the ethos and the tone of the organisation is a supportive one that allows everybody in that organi 
organization to flourish. Um, and, um, you know, that that's where I think Bruce's example about trying to establish a common language and making um, like research and evidence, you know, available through a, a, a library for, for staff to refer to uh, is the sort of thing that, that just generally changes the culture and the, the feeling uh, within a staff makes it a much more positive environment, vibrant environment to, to work in. So, you know, that really has to come from uh, leadership. And uh, even if you've got a few really enthusiastic individuals, if they're sort of lower down in that hierarchy, there's a limit to how much they can influence the actual ethos of the whole organisation. Certainly isn't, and kind of leaders are fundamental for for de, for designing and allowing the space for CLP. And I'm going to move on to to ask a little bit more specific questions about that. And I'm going to ask you, Stuart, should teacher CLPL be be subject specific, or should there be a mix of, of general pedagogy and subject specific pedagogical content knowledge? Well, there should definitely be a mix. Um, I, I don't think though that. Uh, many places in Scotland are actually getting that mix correct at the moment. Um, for many years now in Scotland, there's, I don't think, been sufficient emphasis on subject-specific CLPL. Um, there's evidence that at least 50% of teachers CLPL should be subject-specific, uh, although I do want to expand a little bit on what I mean by subject-specific. Um, it's not just about learning subject content knowledge. Um, although expert teachers no doubt have to have good subject content knowledge um, and often you know they motivate pupils to learn through their knowledge and enthusiasm for their subject. But subject specific CLP is first and foremost about good pedagogical content knowledge. Uh, you know knowing how pupils learn your subject, what misconceptions pupils are likely to have how to probe their understanding and how to explain and communicate things in a way they can understand and build on the existing schemas you know that they will you know have um, you know so no pupil walks into a, a, a classroom uh, as an empty vessel and and it's the picking apart of what they know and building on that that's really important um, now that that obviously includes what might be seen as general pedagogical um, things like the use of formative assessment and diagnostic questionings and feedback. But the problem is if these things are presented in CLPL as too, in too generic a way and not using good examples within the context of the teacher, it becomes difficult and time-consuming for a, a teacher to transfer the generic pedagogical concepts into their own context. So basically this doesn't happen. Busy teachers don't have time to do that. Um, you know, a good example that I can use for that was that, you know, two or three years ago when I was um, tutoring on the, the University of Aberdeen PGDE uh, and I, I was at a session where one of the other tutors from a business studies background was, uh, was leading a session on, on assessment and formative assessment and it fell a bit flat because he had tried to introduce examples from the other subjects of the students that were there and the physics examples that chosen were, were just not appropriate. Um, I also had a very similar experience 
when I was preparing a session on diagnostic questions for a pedigree event that I presented at, um, what I attempted to do was to adapt the presentation that I had written for physics teachers um, and to adapt it for a general audience. And basically, I tried to do it, but I just couldn't do it. And I eventually gave up. And in the session, I just used the physics and science examples that I had used when I had previously presented it to physics teachers. Um, you know, I'm an experienced physics teacher. I, I you know, I think I know my subject well. Um, I know the sorts of things pupils have difficulty with, you know, in my subject. Uh, I can write questions designed to identify and address these particular problems. And I can explain my decisions and choices that I make about, you know, why I would write a question in a particular way. Uh, but I don't know enough about teaching other subjects to be able to do that. And I couldn't write questions and other subjects for the, the pedigree session uh, and certainly not well enough to stand up in front of a group of other teachers and talk about it certainly that uh, kind of sorry to, to interject there, that kind of rings a lot true in, in terms of of my own learning and what i'm learning about developing expertise and it's very domain specific so in terms mm. of a de developing a, a teacher's pedagogical content knowledge it's, it's, it's developing that subject knowledge over time you know you 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 will know your physics well because you've taught it for for a large amount of time. You've been able to kind uh, of refer back to models in your own schema where students kind of got developed misconceptions and you were able to identify that. But obviously, if you were then working with English teachers, you might not have the 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 deep knowledge that they have of of Shakespeare and kind of other writers that they use so that that's so important for, yeah. for, for teachers well, well yeah that, that's what i found is basically what what i i did with the pedigree session was i you know i went through some of these examples and by explaining the thought process that i had gone through and designing this question you know here's the problem that the kids are likely to have um that i want to try and uncover so i've written this question and this is the reason for you know i think that that's the sort of thing that a teacher in another subject can then go away and actually draw on that experience. But you know, there was no way that I could actually use an example um, that I wasn't really well-versed in and steeped in in order to, to do that. And, and that was something that, you know, that it, it really hit me really strongly when I was doing that. And it was also around about the time, you know, when I was reading a lot of stuff for the MSC uh, around about teacher knowledge uh, and um, that. And I, you know, particularly, you know, I've mentioned about pedagogical content knowledge as being key, um, you know, in terms of professional learning. But uh, one of the things that I, I learned about on the, the MSc was uh, Tim Rowland's Knowledge Quartet. And I, I really liked that as a way of um, describing the sort of knowledge that teachers need to become an expert teacher. Uh, and I think it's a really good language that we can use to discuss teacher knowledge and teacher learning. Um, I think too much in education, we don't have a good common agreed language that we can use. And um, that that leads to all sorts of difficulties. So so in the, the knowledge quartet, um, well, first of all, there's foundational knowledge, and that's basically your, your subject knowledge. Um, and then there's transformational knowledge. And I see this a bit like Schulman's pedagogical content knowledge, the PCK, um, teachers need to be able to commu communicate their subject knowledge in a way that learners can access uh, and know the likely problems and misconceptions that pupils are, are going to have, know good questions to ask, uh, you know, how to give good feedback uh, and what sort of blend of activities 
you know, makes up good lessons on a topic. Uh, I was actually fortunate enough as part of the, the MSC to meet um, with Tim Rowlands. He's now a, a retired um, professor um, at the University of Cambridge. Um, and initially, you know, his background is, is primary mathematics, actually. Um, but I know from speaking to, to Tim Rowland that he maybe classifies us a little bit differently uh, and sees PCK as being a bit more foundational than I've maybe described it there. But but certainly it's it's absolutely central to the core of what it means to teach. But the, the third part of the quartet is the connection knowledge that, that teachers need to know the context in which they're working. You know, what, what the pupils' prior experiences and learning uh, is going to be, you know, the, the content of the next level of the course that they're going to go on to the next year. Um, you know, and just the context of the school and the community. Um, but then finally, there's the contingency knowledge. And that's the, the bit that really takes time and experience uh, and builds on all the other three parts of um, the knowledge quartet. You know, expert teachers have to be able to react to the unexpected moments that come up in a class. You know, any teacher knows if you've been teaching any kids for any length of time that they're going to come up with all sorts of unexpected things that you would never predict in your, your planning. And, and good teachers are able to cope with that sort of situation well. Um, you know, they know which bits to play politely ignore um, they know which bits to follow up and you know when to go completely off piste because you know that's going to help something you know that some real learning to take place so I think that the aim in in growing as a teacher is to develop good contingency knowledge um, and that really depends on the other three you know and basically the you know pedagogical content knowledge really sits at the heart of that uh, and that's where good subject specific CLPL is so critical. Um, I think there's good evidence as well that um, when teachers lack knowledge and confidence in their basic content knowledge and the basic PCK that's when they're more likely just to stick to the script you know be less likely to follow up on moments um, and lessons when people show that they've got misconceptions or gaps in their understanding. Um, you know, if teachers don't have the, the necessary knowledge, they just push on to the next bit of the plan, you know, the next page in the textbook. Uh, and pupils' learning suffers. Um, you know, the lessons are less likely to be inspiring. Um, and they're certainly not going to be able to display or um, develop this adaptive expertise um, that uh, you know I mentioned before that you know in Berliner's um, uh, classification of, of teacher development I, I don't think we've really had a good discussion around lots of these basic things um, you know what it means to be a teacher in Scotland um, and I do see discussions like this taking place elsewhere uh, although sometimes that can be really polarized and unhealthy you know the the, the, the prog versus trad arguments in england <laughs> um you know i think they're despair of them at times uh, i've come to the conclusion that you know good explicit instruction you know and that's definitely not passive lecturing as its opponents would advocate it's all about teachers planning good sequences of learning with lots of clear explanations, good questioning, good feedback, you know, practice worked examples. Likewise, good guided inquiry, and it's not full four FOFO teaching. And, you know, the second FO is find out, um, just if anybody's <laughs> wondering about that term. Uh, it's not open 
unguided discovery learning. You know, discovery learning and open inquiry were widely discredited, you know, years and years ago. You know, I also, in, in my career, lived through the process science movement of the late 80s and early 90s, which was generally a disaster. Um, you know, good, good guided inquiry involves carefully thought through teaching sequences, uh, good teacher explanations and questions, you know, it's not that different from good explicit instruction. You know, it's just good teaching. Um, I think the balance also, of course, depends on the age and stage of the learner and how novice or expert they are. And, uh, you know, more explicit instruction to novices, more guided inquiry to, to more expert learners. Um, but all of the, the argument about this is, is just an example of not having a good common language and that, you know, too much, especially in social media, you've just got people shouting past each other uh, and it's, it's not helpful at all. Um, so, um, you know, what I'm now also pretty clear about is for good teaching, whether you want to describe it as explicit instruction or guided inquiry is that to do it well, teachers need really good subject and pedagogical knowledge. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost ironic in some ways that, you know, for good child-centred learning, it's actually really important that the teacher has really good subject and pedagogical knowledge, um, you know, especially the PCK. You know, sort of too often people have mixed up the theories of learning with theories of teaching, and, and they're very different things. Um, so good subject-specific CLPL needs to include lots of what might be sometimes seen as fairly general pedagogical things but i would argue firmly embedded uh, embedded in a subject specific context um and the way that because that, that's basically the way that you have a decent chance of getting teachers to try things out adapt to practice you know and, and hopefully change their habits of mind um that way you're going to get truly transformative CLPL, uh, not just a good experience for a day that, you know, goes nowhere, you know, but if you're lucky, you've got a good, decent lunch out of it. Um, you know, it, it goes back to the first item on Helen Timper's list of her 10 characteristics associated with positive impacts. And, you know, it's a CLPL focused on valued pupil outcomes. Um, as a physics teacher, I went, want pupils to understand and perform better in physics and I'm sure as a, a PE teacher you know you want the same for your pupils in PE um, as a physics teacher I can see how things you know developed and tried out by other physics teachers might impact on my teaching and you know if another physics teacher is able to provide evidence about the benefits uh, of something to their pupils and, and their pupils learn. I'm probably going to be more likely to try it out for myself. So, you know, to, to go back to your question, you know, some time ago, um, you know, there does need to be a mixture of subject specific and more general approaches to CLPL. But I think the balance needs to be shifted from where I think it is in most schools at the moment to include more subject specific CLPL. Um, there's a current research project led by Emily Perry in Sheffield you know, looking at this and, you know, I'm really interested to see the results. Uh, and from speaking to Emily, it appears that the, the interim findings are, are definitely encouraging. Um, but, you know, it's not all about subject specific. There's still a big place for, for teachers meeting across subject boundaries um, and not having, you know, too many closed silos, um, you know, because that's partly where the, the necessary challenge to the status quo comes from. Jen, I like what you what you said Ellen, about us mixing up the theories of learning and the, and the theories of teaching and, and you spoke at 
quite a quite a bit about different examples of of teachers who don't have the necessary subject knowledge and they don't have the necessary pedagogical content knowledge and, and this can be seen quite quite a lot with with novice teachers if I think back to, to the early stages of my career and I'm sure you could you could do the same there was just parts of courses that you just weren't quite sure about so you flew past them so how important is, mm-hmm. is, is the colleagues if you're lucky enough to I know that in some schools in Scotland you could be the only member in a department but if you're lucky enough to have a have a team we're going to move on in a little bit to talk about kind of different 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 areas for CLPL but how important is that to have people in your department to lean against and, and for them to share their knowledge with you so that you can benefit your pupils I think it's really important. Like I, I've, you know, um, I benefited from that sort of greatly when I started my career, um, and um, you know, I had a really good environment when I started teaching at Kinross High School. Um, both my my own the PT physics um, and the PT chemistry and the science technician would remain in school at the end of the day and then wind over a cup of tea. Um, and the, the, the sort of science base was in the sort of room in between my room and um, the PT physics room. Um, so, you know, it was really easy just to, to go and get a cup of tea at the end of the day and then wind. But, you know, I, what I was able to do was then to, to tap into several decades of experience and wisdom and talk about how to teach science better. Um, I, I, and you know, I find that that a really good um, environment, uh, and I think it's probably, you know, crucial in setting my career off along the path that it did. Um, but in, ma- in many ways, um, you know, I was looking for more, and, and I think it's particularly an issue where you've got small rural schools, um, and that that was a, one of the things that I um, did for my dissertation for my my MSc was actually to look at the networking of of teachers in a sort of relatively remote and rural area uh, and certainly what I found in, in my own teaching was that I, I started to look beyond the sort of immediate school um, you know the, 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 I got excellent support from the you know my close colleagues but I can't remember any other useful CLPL being provided by the school or local authority um, so, you know, I attended uh, an ASE Scotland annual conference um, in, in my first year of teaching, and that was where I found a, a group of people interested in improving the teaching of science uh, and access to speakers and presenters talking about things that, you know, I could do to change what I was doing in my classroom. Um, you know, it was access to speakers that I could never get access to in my school. Um, you know, and that was a long time before social media, you know, started to, to open things up. Um, so I think subject associations can play a big role in teacher CLPL. Uh, they provide a forum and a framework for teachers to come together and collaborate. Um, and they've had that role for a long time. Like ASE can trace its roots back to 1901. The IOP is actually celebrating its centenary this year. Um, but they're a sort of third sector body that haven't always fitted in or been welcomed into the wider educational system. Um, I suppose the fact that they have lobbying and professional voice roles as well as teacher support roles and are independent organisations mean that some in power have uh, seen them more as a threat at times rather than a supportive partner. Um, but I really think that you know if you get involved in a subject association, um, it, it maybe requires a bit of teacher, teacher agency and confidence to, to get involved in the first place. But you know, being involved actually promotes teacher agency and, and um, you can get a lot out from it. Um, 
I think one of really good example of a subject associated getting it right is the IOP teacher network. Now, I, I realise that I'm slightly biased on, on that front, um, perhaps, but, you know, it did start nearly 20 years ago now um, and was based on the model of providing some funding to a small number of experienced practicing physics teachers to provide support to other physics teachers in their area. Um, initially, they were called coordinators. Uh, now they're called physics coaches. And, and that, you know, uh, shows how the actual um, role has evolved as we've learned more. Um, they might be paid the equivalent of, say, 10 days per year to provide support, which might be twilight sessions or in the evening or on Saturdays. Um, you know, I was one for many years. Uh, and you know, I'm now the person responsible for managing the team of coaches in Scotland. Um, you know, I'm the, the sort of project manager for the the, the Scottish Physics Teacher Network. Um, and the the success of this sort of uh, way of doing things, you know, is because it draws on the experience and the expertise of practicing teachers. You know, who know what the the issues are that physics teachers are having to face at any given time uh, and but the nature of the role they have um you know it, it, it attracts the sort of people who are likely to be some of the most engaged in finding solutions to the problems and are you know best placed to help colleagues you know they've got credibility uh, you know within the the the, the profession um so it, it does take a bit of central support and training and coordination which you know we provide at the IOP uh, and that improves their ability uh, to support other teachers and the reach to do this um, and it's together with some funding for travel and buying you know tea and coffee and decent biscuits and cakes um, you know that's very important for you know any CLPL event um, it's produced some you know very effective and cost-effective ways of providing high-quality relevant support for physics teachers uh, you know it's, it's about you know it's going back to what you said a little bit before about leadership you know if you set up the right environment, you know, you can create the, an environment where teachers will willingly turn up of an evening and, you know, even bring and share their own food. You know, I, I know one uh, teacher, one school where we can get an excellent apple cake. Uh, and perhaps the best example uh, recently was uh, uh, when a, a teacher turned up to one of the events with a lamb tagine and a, a slow cooker to share with the, the rest of the teachers. You know, you know that, that shows, you know, when you've got things like that happening, you know, it's kind of, you know, it shows that you're, something's right you know somebody's if teachers are willing to come together and do things like that you know in their you know essentially their own time at the end of the school day um you know i think we're doing something right and it shows the benefit of that community um the, the other thing uh, you know with the iop teacher network is that in the early days we set up sputnik um which i think lots of teachers around scotland have have heard about even if they're not physicists um it was the email forum specifically for Scottish physics teachers. Um, it was initially Scottish Physics Teacher News and Comment, SPTNC, uh, but that obviously got quickly morphed into Sputnik. Uh, and having a simple online forum to discuss teaching physics has been absolutely central to improving the sense of community within Scottish physics teaching. Um, it's led to other things such as the resource sharing, um, and I know that other subjects have got similar email lists, etc. But I think the reason that the the physics community one has been successful um, 
is that because of the the, the system of coaches in places, uh, you know, the, the the coaches have been able to provide that collective leadership and direction to the community, um, not in an imposed way, but because it's been part of their role to monitor what's been going on, look for ways to provide support. They're able to react to things that happen and also you know instigate things as well. Um, and I think it's a really cost-effective way of providing you know good support too. Um, a good example is what's just happened with the result of COVID-19. Um, it actually came at a, a, a sort of really bad time for the IOP teacher network in Scotland as, as four of the, the long-standing coaches had recently retired um, and I had moved role um, um, and it only left um, you know two of the, the more experienced coaches uh, and I had just expanded the team by appointing nine new coaches to join the, the uh, existing two uh, and we we hadn't had a chance even to meet together face to face. I had met with them all, um, but you know, just one one quick meeting to welcome, you know, say hello, welcome them, basically. Um, but we hadn't had any chance to do any induction or training or uh, the, the sort of normal support that we would expect. However, using video conferencing and you know, we set up a Google Classroom and uh, other things. Um, you know, that coach team came together brilliantly and responded to the needs of teachers. You know, so between Easter and the summer, um, we ran 25 online sessions, delivered over a thousand teacher hours of CLPL. Um, we reached teachers in every local authority. You know, that's one of the big benefits of going online. Um, we were frequently joined by teachers across from across the rest of the UK and Ireland, you know, and beyond. Um, I know that end of session evaluations aren't always the best indication of, you know, impact on pupil learning. But you know, the end of session evaluation responses have been great. You know, the average four point eight out of five for both the quality of the sessions and the usefulness. And you know, th th these are sort of figures that you you know would die for. You know, in terms of teacher professional learning. Um, you know, so some of the IOP online sessions this last term have been on topics like teaching forces or teaching earth and space um, where the focus has been very much on the pedagogical content knowledge needed to teach a small part of that physics topic you know for example the forces one focused on how to use force arrows uh, and the common misconceptions around falling objects you know um, you know do heavy objects fall faster than slow uh, than um, light objects and these sorts of things and, and much of the earth and space um, was on the scale of the, the solar system and how diagrams that you see often misrepresent that in some way or another um, and, and of course there was ideas about how to address these problems and you know simple activities you know I was I was dropping you know from a PE perspective you know I was, I was dropping things like golf balls and table tennis balls and badminton shuttlecocks and things to see how you know they would fall um, um, looking at the you know the, the gravitational force and their resistance force and using these sorts of things to um, explain uh, what was going on but but there was other sessions that we ran on things like diagnostic questions using Microsoft Teams, using Sway, cognitive load theory, um, you know, using branching forms, creating and using video, you know, there was, there was you know, 20 odd sessions in total. But I would argue that all of these sessions were subject specific, um, you know, even the ones like using Microsoft Teams or Sway, because all the examples that were being used were 
in the context of teaching physics. Um, you know, so lots of generic things, but in a readily accessible form for teachers. So, you know, being able to put a programme of support like that together at short notice, you know, shows what can be achieved with a little bit of support provided to the, the sort of people who have the experience and expertise, you know, who would generally want to provide good professional learning to their peers, but they just need a forum and a bit of help, you know, a bit of project management, some basic funding to make it happen. Um, you know, there's a limit to what teachers are prepared to do for nothing. Um, but it's amazing what can be achieved for very little cost if you build the right sort of culture and environment. And, you know, I think subject associations can, can be a vehicle for, for doing this. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it probably the same could be said about you producing your podcast. I'm sure it costs you time and money to do, uh, but I'm sure you feel that you're getting some benefit out of it. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. But, you know, th there must be a limit to, to what you can or, you know, won't do. And, you know, subject associations largely operate on a volunteer input, um, but they give the sort of framework and community that allows people to contribute and get their voice heard by a wider audience. Um, I think one of the great things is that a subject association sort of works in this sort of, sort of middle space, um, allowing connections to be made across a community by by giving a forum for people to volunteer and contribute to the greater good. Um, you know, a good vibrant association um, should be able to do this well and avoid becoming a clique or a, an old boys club. You know, there, there are dangers, but, you know, that can result in stagnation or alienation. But, you know, a good subject association should be able to avoid that. And, and I think there is demand, you know, on the ground for that sort of support. I think the rise of pedigree and research ed, um, you know, in recent years, you know, shows there's a, a demand for good quality grassroots teacher-led CLPL and it's it's not being provided by the formal system. So I think there is a role for subject associations, you know, a really important part of the mix. And, um, you know, it can allow for genuine teacher agency and empowerment. Certainly that empowerment agenda is definitely one that, that's very much, very much big in, in Scotland just now. And my next question to all can I ask about, can I, do you think subject associations have been more successful in the sciences than in other areas because because my experience is, is we have we have a quite a it is quite good at a PE association but it doesn't deliver on areas that I think it should and and I think especially if you're going to events and getting a and a lovely lamb tagine then that's just that's just going to <laughs> have different world but what you described there was a, a really effective empowered um, culture that the IOP and, and, and physics teachers seem to be be able to then develop their, their teacher expertise, their pedagogical content knowledge because they have this offer. Obviously, it's backed by a, a company out with of education like IOP, but do you think the sciences have had a little bit more success with that than in other areas? Um, it, well, it's difficult for me to comment, you know, objectively because, you know, my direct experience has been within the sciences. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, while I've been describing some really, you know, important, successful um activities within the sciences you know the the percentage probably of the profession that's really actively engaging with the subject associations and with the events is you know it's still a, a relatively small percentage you know something that we're working on but you know would like to to see um improve um 
But I do think the subject associations and the sciences have been relatively strong. Um, and I think there's probably a number of reasons for that. And, and firstly, you know, taking science as a whole, um, you know, the science subjects together, uh, it does make up one of the largest groups of teachers in secondary schools. Um, so there, I think there's just an element of scale involved. Um, I think secondly, uh, we've also had long-standing organisations that can trace their roots back decades um, and which have been big enough also to employ um, staff, um, which enables them to undertake activities which those organisations purely relying on volunteer teachers can't do. You know, yeah. teachers are busy teaching during the normal day of, you know, ready said a wee bit about the difficulty again teacher's voice heard and, and, and policy making. Um, so, if, you know, if teachers can't get to meetings easily, um, you know, having staff can actually um, get around that problem to a certain extent. Um, you know, having staff, though, does involve additional cost. You know, it can make the membership of um, subject associations relatively expensive. Um, so, it, you know, it is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, although, having said that, you know, all the events of the likes of ASE and IOP are always open to, to anyone. It's not just uh, open to members. And that's a point that I think is often misunderstood by others. Again, I've, I've had conversations with the likes of civil servants um, when it's only become clear to me, you know, partway through or, you know, after a, a discussion that they've been under the impression that events and things organised by subjects associations are exclusives and, and, and members only. And, and certainly from my experience, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, I think hopefully non-members attending the events and taking part in activities will see the benefit and will eventually join, but you know, realise that you know that it's not necessarily the, the optimum business model um, to, to make um, you know things readily available or not have a big you know cost differential or or um, you know sort of free at the point of use to, to encourage membership. Um, but I think you know that that comes from partly from the the charitable nature of subject associations like the the ASE and IOP. You know, and there's um, part of their, um, you know, sort of charter aims is to um, support the wider good um, of the subject and not just their members. Um, so, so in the sciences, you know, we, we've also benefited from subject bodies like the Institute of Physics or the Royal Society of Chemistry as, as well, for example, um, that exist not just to support education but the wider profession of, of you know physicists for the IOP you know so university academics researchers people in business and industry and, and and due to the the need for more people with a physics education coming through the school system into university and industry um, the people in those sectors have been very supportive of the likes of IOP investing quite heavily in school education and and um, you know supporting teachers um, so that's meant that there's been a lot of work done supporting the professional learning of teachers and in work such as improving diversity and inclusion you know um, another good example there is that IOP ran the pilot project with um, funding from Skills Development Scotland on improving and gender balance in Scottish schools um, and through the impetus that came from physics or that was aimed right across the curriculum um, and the success, successful IOP pilot um, that was absorbed into Education Scotland and expanded into what they now call the, the Improving Gender Balance and Equalities team um, 
and it's been rolled out across all the schools in Scotland. Um, so being able to run a project like that is only possible because of the, the wider infrastructure that, that an organisation like IOP that's sort of bigger than just supporting teachers, you know, basically has at its disposal. Um, you know, I, I would like to say that, you know, strong subject association across the, the whole curriculum, you know, able to play a part in building a community of teachers and helping to provide and facilitate, facilitate good subject uh, CLPL is, is something that I would like to see. Um, you know, I think it's a, a really cost-effective way of impacting on the, the quality of teaching and learning in Scotland. And I'm, I'm not just talking about secondary schools. I think there's the need for subject-specific CLPL for primary teachers too. You know, I, I would hope that it's already well recognised that to teach topics such as reading and you know basic maths, number work, you know, needs good subject knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge and it applies right across the curriculum but the other areas of the curriculum don't always get the support that they need um, you know to teach things like why why things float in sync or, or simple electric circuits is quite conceptually challenging and many physics explanations are, are counterintuitive compared to ideas developed in something you know what's sometimes called folk physics like I mentioned the you know the dropping heavy and light objects and whether they hit the ground at the same time or not, you know, the, the actual subtlety of what's going on there is quite complex. And, um, you know, lots of people have a, a folk physics idea that heavy things fall faster than, than light things. And, you know, basically, um, you know, providing they're, they're streamlined and fall from a, a, a small height, they will hit the ground at the same time. Um, because there's also air resistance going on that, you know, when uh, you start dropping them from higher heights, then there starts to be a difference. To, to dig into the subtlety of that um, is actually quite complex. And, you know, although I'm in, in awe of what our primary colleagues are able to do and achieve, um, I think it's also unreasonable for us to ask that, you know, by doing a, a degree and a primary teaching qualification, that that prepares them to teach all aspects of the curriculum you know it's i just don't think that's sensible so there's really is a good need um you know for good subject specific clpl to help in areas where their knowledge and confidence is low you know and and physics topics consistently come up um as ones that primary teachers are, are identify when they're asked about their clpl needs in in the stem subjects um so, so there's lots that still needs to be done, you know, even in the sciences. I think we've got good um, associations. I think we've got good knowledge and experience that we can build on and learn from. But, you know, much still to be done, I'm afraid. No, it certainly is. But obviously, there's nothing's ever perfect. But it's definitely something that the other subject associations can 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 learn from and, and lean on and, and help help their teachers and their subjects develop the pedagogical content knowledge and the subject expertise that... that our students will, will most likely benefit from. Can I move on now a little bit, Stuart, and, and I'm going to ask you about external providers of CPD, mm -hmm. you know, the, the one-day speakers, etc. Do you think there's still a role for them? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, there needs to be challenge to the status quo and we need people, you know, um, to spread good ideas. Um, but I think, you know, the, the one, the classic one-day inspirational speaker on, on their own, you know, can't do that. Um, you know, the speaker needs 
to be built into a programme of linked events and time for teachers to try things out and revisit issues, discuss with their colleagues. Um, yeah, if that's not done, an external speaker coming into a school is likely just to be a waste of time, you know, for everybody, you know, including the speaker themselves. Um, I, I also think, you know, there's a need for conferences, you know, events like the IOP Stirling meeting or the ASE annual conference can give teachers access to speakers. You couldn't possibly expect to hear, you know, in more local or school events, you know, you know, one of the benefits of COVID-19, um, you know, has been the increased access to speakers online. But, um, you know, teachers and, and more importantly, school leaders and budget holders, you know, they, they, they need to, um, I think, be realistic and, you know, shouldn't expect online events just to provide, you know, lots of CLPL for free. You know, organisations still have to cover costs. Um, and, um, you know, just as there is for face-to-face -face conferences. So, you know, I think there is still need for that sort of, uh, for conferences and things, whether they're online or face-to-face, because -face, um, it does give access to, to speakers and expertise that you couldn't normally get, um, you know, on a more local basis. Um, but I, th I think the key thing is that teachers need to be able to plan coherent programmes of CLPL that meet their needs. Um, and, you know, that needs a balance of activities. Um, but they need to be, have, you know, have a clear purpose and address a real need. Um, you know, that's one of the things that we're actually working on in the, the IOP teacher network uh, at the moment. You know, for 2020, 2021, we expect to still be working online um, largely. So certainly, you know, through until October, definitely, um, but probably till after Christmas at this rate, if not longer. Um, so we're planning a series of focused events um, with pre-tasks and gap tasks, um, as well as webinars. Um, and we want to make use of breakout rooms to have more interactivity, um, like you have in face-to-face -face conference events. Uh, you know, and the series of events are going to be on things like the sort of language and physics, support for teachers new to advanced hire, using research in physics teaching, you know, drawing on the works of the likes of the EEF and evidence-based education and best evidence science teaching projects. Um, you know, they're, they're the sorts of things that, you know, we've been asked for support and the feedback that we've been getting back in the evaluations, but they're also the sort of things that coaches through their own CLPL and their own training, you know, have identified that are likely to have good impact on the, the, the CLPL and practice of other teachers. And certainly it's, it's very exciting. I suppose, and for me, during this pandemic, it's, it's been brilliant because I've been able to listen to, to speakers like Emma Turner and, and Professor Robert Coe and, and Tom Sherrington and, and people like that who I wouldn't be, who probably would never <clears> come to, to my school or to, to Clark Manninshire where I work. So it's, it's, I think yeah. there, there's a role for that. I think but, finishing. You know, finishing. but I've, I've, you know, just following up on that, you know, uh, through my work through, um, you know, associations and other things, I have met two of these three people that you've said and, you know, heard them speak live, you know, along with, you know, lots of other people, you know, Dylan William and uh, Paul Black that he did, you know, his initial work on um, the black box with, you know, so that that's where I think there is a role for conferences and subject associations because they, they can give teachers access to people like that. Mm, certainly, um, so kind of moving on to towards the the end of of our interview, we've got a couple more questions for you, student. Yep. And I want to start with there with how do we how do we make teacher CLPL part of our education system? 
that teachers really benefit from? Um, well, I think it, it's, it's got to be given greater prioritisation. Um, you know, if we are, as a nation, are genuinely interested in improving the learning of our young people, we need to improve the ability of our teachers to teach them. Um, that means teachers need to focus on improving the quality of teaching and not be distracted by admin tasks or continual minor changes to SQA assessment arrangements. Um, you know, these are all just things that take time and effort away from the core business. Um, you know, we need to turn the rhetoric of empowerment into reality. Certainly, and, and you've mentioned once or twice already the, the, the core business of teachers, and I think that's the, what needs to be, be prioritised. You know, our core business is providing excellent learning and teaching to, to the young people, and that really improves outcomes for them. So I, I totally agree with that. Can I ask you then, what what, what do we currently get right that, that is worth celebrating? Well, I think some of the top-level rhetoric about teacher empowerment is right, um, although it does beg the question about why teachers might have been disempowered and by whom and you know if those people doing the disempowering are, are ready to change as well um, but I think you know part of the problem for for teachers to be empowered is there needs to be you know a reasonably consistent and shared vision, vision through the system you know and sufficient support in place you know, for that to be realised. And, and I don't think the implementation of CFE and the various other policy developments has provided that. Um, yeah, I've been doing quite a bit of reading recently about the, the conceptions of professionalism, um, both explicitly and implicitly promoted in Scottish policy documents during the last couple of decades or so. Uh, and there's clearly confusion. Um, uh, uh, you know, probably need a whole other podcast in its own right to, to explore that one. Um, there's, all, there's, there's also, you know, good examples of good CLPO, you know, Hopefully, the, the example of the IOP teacher network, you know, mm -hmm. falls into that group. Um, uh, you know, and I think in terms of guidance for CLPL, the National Model of Professional Learning has many positive features and should be a help to those planning and delivering CLPL. It, it does seem to be based on best practice, um, the likes of the work of Timperley and, and Cordingley. Um, but it would really be nice if they could just properly reference that um, you know, as I said, it just seems to be based on best practice. Um, you know, it, it's kind of presented in a way that suggests it's maybe the only way of looking at CLPL and mm -hmm. there's no background context. Um, you know, the lack of references generally in Scottish education documents is a concern. Um, and, and when you compare Scottish documents with some from other countries, they're really quite poor in terms of having no references or where they do have references there's self-references and circular references back to other government documents um you know so i do think the narrative has been quite tightly controlled um i also think teachers have better access to research and evidence informed practice now than ever before um i think there's basically two reasons for that um Firstly, I think the general trend towards teaching as a master's profession is good and that more teachers engaged in critical evaluation of policy and practice, you know, the more the better. Um, I think the big test is ensuring that teachers continue to engage after the two or three years of doing their master's, um, you know, when the busy, busy life piles back on top of them, you know, that they maintain 
the, the sort of lessons learned. Um, I would also like to see a wider range of master's degrees available in Scotland, uh, particularly ones with a greater focus on, on teaching and learning. Um, one of the reasons why I think I enjoyed the MSc at the University of Oxford so much was that it was on science teacher education. You know, it, it prompted me and allowed me to delve quite deeply into the beliefs and values around the nature of science, the nature of teaching, the nature of learning. Um, you know, I had a whole unit on teacher knowledge and the likes of PCK, and it involved me doing four research projects into science teacher and, and science teacher educator learning. Um, as well as my dissertation, which you know I chose to do on the CLPL of a, a network of physics teachers in a, a relatively remote part of Scotland, um, you know it was all good stuff that I'm now building on further with my PhD. Um, you know, but what I've seen of many of the master's courses up here in Scotland is either a great focus on leadership or on much more generic issues that I, I don't see as being so directly related to improve teaching in the classroom um, you know I'm sure teachers can adapt some of these topics to be more more directly related but it probably needs a bit of you know a bit of work in bending the rules at time you know, I, I might be wrong you know it's just my perception but you know it has been reported made by some others that are studied on some of the courses so um, you know I think not all but there's too many teachers that have spoken to me about it I've said that they've been you know less than happy um i think the second reason as well as this i'm pushed towards masters is that teachers have had much better access to research in recent years there's been an explosion of books where where people are helping make information you know from otherwise fairly inaccessible academic research papers um you know either because they're behind a paywall or they're just too difficult to read um but making them available and helping translate um the research into practice that teachers can try in the tr in, in their own uh classrooms um you know there's blogs podcasts you know such as as this one you know twitter has been really transformative i think in the access to information as well um you know, despite a career involved in CLPL, I know that Twitter has transformed my access and discourse around teaching and learning since I joined in 2012. Um, I find a lot of teachers still dismiss Twitter, uh, and it's not always the best place for nuanced, subtle discussion. Um, but I think used sensibly, it can be a fantastic news feed straight into the thinking of many of the world's leading educationalists, um, you know, practicing teachers and thinkers in education, you know, to be able to follow people like Daniel Willingham and Dylan William and, you know, see what they're commenting on things and papers that they point people to is, is you know, that's just not something that, you know, happened um, until Twitter came along. Um, you know, teachers still need to take a critical approach to using Twitter um, and avoid repeating the pitfalls like, you know, learning styles and brain gym, for example. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, some of the teacher tap survey results I've seen, you know, recently in particular, you know, show there's still, a, you know, some way to go. Um, it's not that I'm blaming individual teachers, you know, I'm, I'm blaming, blaming the system, the, the culture and conditions that teachers have to work in. Certainly, that's that's the system and the and the cultures that we work in. They they give rise to to the edgy myths that that the research mm. community has, has done a lot of work to try and 
try and rid rid our, our system of them. But I, I totally agree in what you say about it's about Twitter. It's not it's not kind of a space that sometimes very nice at times, but it's definitely for me. It's been a, a space where I've been able to just get access to, as you say, the thinking of a, a great people and and what that what they're working on, and they often provide their their literature for free through a link on Twitter as well, which means you can access that that as well. So just to can I can I finish up the interview interview section of the the podcast? Sure. How do we sum up and, and ensure then that we, we have good quality subject specific learning, which focuses on teaching and learning? Well, I, th- I do think we need still to promote a culture change. Um, it does need a bit of resource in the right places. Um, prioritising things a little bit different, not just new resource. Um, there are examples of good practice in Scotland, excellent examples from elsewhere as well. Um, I think there's much wrong with education in England. Um, I'm very pleased to be on this side of the border. Um, but there's a general level of debate around many issues, including CLPL down there that's regrettably missing up here. Um you know, the work of organisations such as the Teacher Development Trust is really quite informative. You know, David Weston, the the, the TDD um, chief executive, you know, has also advocated that teachers join subject associations of, as a mean to access subject specific, you know, community journal newsletters and, you know, experts at conferences, etc. Um, you know, the recent report by Rob Coe and his colleagues uh, evidence-based education is another really good example of the sort of work um, that I just don't see happening up here and you know I think we do need to try and promote things like that because um, I think there is a really good case for investing in, in CLPL um, you know the effectiveness of individual teachers uh, makes a large difference to people's learning outcomes you know and, and teacher effectiveness can be increased substantially by you know in-service professional learning um and and although clpl may sometimes be seen as expensive you know and a a sort of non-core element of running a school you know compared to all the other things that you can do to raise attainment it's extremely you know cost effective um so i think that you know there is a case for subject specific clpl uh, and it's you know likely to have the most direct impact on changing the practice you know and and the habits of mind It's, it's changing that culture um, that's, I think, really important within education. Brilliant. And, and recently I've, I interviewed David Weston as well for the, for the podcast, which will be which will be out soon. So And, and, and he, he shares a lot of the, the ideas that you've, you've shared here in, in the interview today. So thank you very much for that. And brings us to the end of the, the interview section, Stuart, but before we move on to, to what I call my final three, which are the questions that I they ask every guest. Um, but before we do that, can you share with listeners where they can find out a little bit more about with you and perhaps engage with you and, and, and comment on and comment on and feedback to you some of the things we've discussed today? Well, the, my main, um, you know, access and the, the um, social media etc. is through Twitter and that's at Stuart Physics. Um, so, so really, that's the the, the main way that people could follow what I'm up to and uh, it is a fairly you know a professional news feed you, you will get occasional things about vegetables and um, um, about motorbike racing but you know most of the time it's about uh, education um, so so I think at Stuart Physics is probably the the best place um, to, to catch up with me I don't have a book to promote or anything like that I've, I've got a couple of book chapters um, coming out but they're um, 
relatively niche things, so uh, <laughs> I, I won't comment on them. Brilliant. Thank you, thank you so much, Stuart. So my, my first question in, in the final three is incidentally about a book. So uh, what book or text has, has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Well, I think for this one, I'm going to have to go down the same route as several of the other previous guests and, and go for more than one, I'm afraid. Um, uh, a wee bit of context for, for the, the, the first one. And, and that was in the spring of 2016. I went to my first research ed conference. It was actually one on maths and science at the University of Oxford. And, I, and that was before I started doing the MSc in Oxford. Uh, and, and it had several great speakers. You know, And again, this is an example of the sort of... Um, benefits of conferences of that that type uh, you know i heard robin miller from the university of Rock, york and james de winter from the university of cambridge uh, jana weinstein you know was who was one of the learning scientists at the time um but i, I also heard uh, nick rose speak and and that prompted me to get the book that he wrote along with david dido um what every teacher needs to know about psychology um, and and, and I'm, I'm referring to that basically because it was a bit like a gateway drug, um, I suppose. You know, there was a lot of things happening on Twitter and about cognitive science and, you know, cognitive psychology. Um, and I found it, you know, especially the first half of it, uh, full of things that I, when I, you know, when I read, I immediately could link to things that I'd experienced in my teaching. And it was, you know, it was kind of, you know, wh- why I had done things that hadn't worked well i I realized that you know there was actually well recognized in research reasons behind that and i I find a lot of answers um and it it was also well referenced you know so going back to my comments about scottish government documents you know the the book was really well referenced so i was able to follow up on various things and it you know really made me wonder why you know at that time you know i'd been teaching for 30 years i'd been really well engaged in professional learning but I was reading all of this stuff that had been around often for a long time um, that I just hadn't come across. And it was kind of, you know, there was this disconnect between, um, you know, three decades of experience and then all of this new stuff that was kind of just blowing my mind. So so it's kind of got a special place um, for me in that, it, as I say, it was that kind of gateway drug. Um, in terms of CLPL, I do want to mention, you know, two other books are in terms of the professionalism of teachers because they've kind of had a similar role and the first one is the the activist teaching profession by judith sachs and the the other one is professional capital uh the subtitles transforming teaching in every school by by andy hargreaves and uh michael fullen and you know they're two books that um kind of have got that sort of special place in terms of setting me off in a particular direction Right, thank you very much, Stuart, and, and certainly books that I thoroughly enjoyed reading the the psychology one, and it had the same kind of kind of effect of me and reading it for the first time, and and, and why didn't I know this already, and, and open up a whole world. So thank you for for adding that one in as well. And my second question of the final three is: is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? It's make time to speak to other teachers about teaching and learning. Um, as I said earlier, as a sort of young, naive, definitely not very worldly wise probationer, you know, I, I benefited from, you know, really gratefully from speaking, you know, on, on a pretty much daily basis to two experienced colleagues, you know, two PTs. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, most of the time they actually enjoyed and find it refreshing 
to be asked about things and speaking to me too. Um, you know, so so I do think you know that it, it works both ways, um, and it's a way of keeping fresh as a more experienced you know uh, teacher. Um, and the the first three schools that I taught in had you know a semi-open plan arrangements, um, so I was seeing colleagues teach. You know, it was quite naturally. And when I moved uh, to a school where there was rooms off a corridor, you know, that was really much harder to do. So I think, you know, make time to speak to colleagues about teaching and learning, but with a, you know, a clear purpose. Um, observe colleagues to, uh, you know, I'm a, a big fan of going on uh, things called learning walks where you, where you just drop in a few minutes into the classes of a few colleagues during a period. So it doesn't take very long. Um, you know, you need to get permission, you know, from them to do it um you know don't just drop in unannounced but do it regularly and frequently uh, and it's amazing what you'll see and learn and the conversations and deeper learning it can stimulate you know the, the conversation the follow-up conversation in staff rooms and things afterwards so it, it doesn't need to take very long uh, but it does need a bit of prioritization and commitment to, to make it happen um you know and and again it, i think helps build that supportive culture but you know it needs a supportive leadership culture to to help do that uh, and but speaking to colleagues um you know within your school and obviously you know within our subject associations good idea too certainly is. thank you very much and it brings us to the final question sure and, and it's one that really fascinates me and the wide variety of responses that i get from from my guests and, and it's what do you think most gets in the way of, of just great teaching in our classrooms I think I can sum it up by saying the performativity and accountability culture in education um, and the lack of trust in teachers. Um, you know, I was listening to your podcast that you did with David Dido just recently, and he, he just said the word leadership. Um, but I haven't come across anyone in school leadership who wants to do a bad job. Um, you know, and they're, they're caught in the middle often and feeling tensions being pulled in lots of different directions you know however there is a collective culture of accountability bureaucracy micromanagement that, that gets in the way of good teaching and learning and that and that often frustrates and demotivates teachers um you know there's a, a fear about doing things wrong even if if no one's watching you know that's oh, you won't be able to see me doing you know inverted quotation you know marks um about you know people watching you know there often isn't you know but there's that sort of fear um in the system you know teaching is the core business of schools and therefore supporting teachers to improve their teaching should be the core business of the education system um but at the moment it's just too much of an afterthought okay, and that's a wonderful wonderful way to to end and and kind of further emphasising that the core business of our schools is, is that teaching and learning. So brings to the end, Stuart, so I'd like to, to thank you very, very much for, for giving me your time during during the, the summer holidays and for for providing such wonderful insights throughout the podcast. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Dan. It was always good fun to speak to uh, another teacher about uh, making teaching and learning better. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.